Our God is great and he is greatly to be praised. From the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, our God is worthy to be praised. My name is Brandon Reddick, for those of you who are new to the bridge, and I am the lead pastor here of the Bridge Church, where we exist to develop fully devoted followers of Christ in a multi-ethnic context. As Pastor Josh said earlier, if you are here for the first or second time, we'd love for you to complete that Bridge card. We want to know your name, that you were here, and say thank you, and be able to say thank you in a tangible way. If you want more information from the Bridge Church, feel free to complete that. Put that on the back of the card, um, and we will get that information to you um, as you so requested. Um, uh, thank you to the elders. Thank you so much for what you did to uh, acknowledge my wife on this morning. Um, they, they decided what they wanted to do. Um, I was not a part of that conversation, so thank you. Um, for everything that you've done to acknowledge her. Let me say this, um, by extension, uh, thank you to all of those who serve on our worship team. Uh, you give up uh, hour, hour and a half every Thursday night. Uh, you come early on Sunday mornings uh, and you serve and we don't take that for granted. Thank you so much for how faithful you are in serving. We appreciate it from those who serve on the stage to those who serve on the AV team. We say thank you so much from the bottom of our hearts. Our worship experience is richer um, and more glorifying to God because of the way that you serve. So thank you again. Um, turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. This morning we'll, be, we'll uh, start our study at verse 44 and go through verse number 52. Acts chapter 13, verse 44 through 52. We are in our sermonic series as we uh, call, called Multiply, as we study through the book of Acts. Acts chapter 13, verse 44 through 52. And we're going to ask you one more time to stand to your feet um, for the reading of God's word. And we stand in honor and reverence to God's holy word. Acts chapter 13, verse 44. It's on the screen if you want to follow along as well. The next Sabbath, Almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, 
And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believe. The word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Mike DeWine served for multiple years as a U.S. Senator. He is currently serving as the Attorney General of the state of Ohio. Hey, babe, while you back there, bring me a cup of water. Since we just appreciated you. <laughs> All right, let me start over. Mike DeWine served for multiple years as a senator, and now he's serving as the Attorney General at the state of Ohio. During his time as U.S. Senator, he is quoted as saying these words. One of the most important things that I have learned in my 57 years is that life is all about choices. Thank you. On every journey you take, you face choices. At every fork in the road, you make a choice. And it is those decisions that shape our lives. I agree with Attorney General Mike DeWine. The choices are, they are a fork in the road. And those decisions that we make shape our lives. I believe, church, that the gospel is a fork in the road moment. It, and it will shape our lives both now and for eternity. The gospel, it's a fork in the road. You have two decisions to make when it comes to the gospel. Either you will receive it or you will reject it. Now, not only does this pertain to our salvation, but it also pertains to our sanctification. Because every day, we are faced with a fork in the road moment. Will we live according to the gospel of being saved by faith through grace? Or, we, or will we live according to the law, a legalistic way of life? The gospel, a fork in the road. That, that's our sermon title for today that I just came up with last night. And so that's why it's all messed up on your worship guide. The gospel, a fork in the road. And what we will see today are these two responses to the gospel. Our text opens today in verse 44 by telling us that the whole city gathered 
to hear the word of the Lord. Notice that this is one large gathering in Antioch of Pisidia. And in Antioch of Pisidia, it was mostly populated by Gentiles. However, obviously in this Antioch, there were also Jews present since there was a local Jewish synagogue there. In this large gathering of Jews and Gentiles gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Look, look, friends, at what brought this cross-section of people together. It was nothing else but the word of the Lord. It was the gospel that brought these people together. Notice what attracted these people to gather together in mass was the gospel. We could say that the early church was, let's see, an attractional church. They, they, they attracted people to the church not by clever marketing strategies or clever ploys, but simply they attracted people to Christ through the gospel. Friends, the gospel is attractive all on its own. We don't have to put on a show every week. We don't have to have all the lights, the camera, and the action. We, we, we don't have to put on a production every week. We just need to be faithful to the gospel. Faithful to the proclamation of the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't need clever marketing strategies. We don't need top-notch performers on stage. We just need to be faithful to the gospel. And the gospel on itself will gather a crowd to come and hear the good news. I, I, I read last week that one church, to get people to come to church for Easter, gave away a brand new car. It ain't happening here. I read recently that another church is starting a brewery. Sip, sip. <laughs> Friends, let me remind you that we are to be in the world, but not of the world. We need to be faithful to the gospel because the gospel will gather a crowd more than some beer can. Look at all the beer people say, oh, well, I'll go... <laughs> <laughs> All right, how do we move forward from here? <laughs> Paul and Barnabas preached the gospel, and the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Friends, there is power in the word. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's sweeter than honey on a honeycomb. The gospel is good news. And I'm just convinced that people want to hear some good news in a bad news world. In a day and age full of hmm, fake news, they want the truth. And the gospel is the truth. And so now this gospel has been proclaimed by Paul and Barnabas. And the first thing that we're going to see this morning is the negative response to the gospel. Look with me first of all at the negative response 
to the gospel. The first negative response to the gospel is that we see the reviling of the messengers. We see the reviling of the messengers. Friends, let me just tell you this. Though the gospel is attractive, it is also divisive. Look at verse 44. It says, when the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy. And they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. The word reviling means to slander, to blaspheme. And the Jews here refer not to all Jews, but just the, the disbelieving Jews. And the text says when they saw this crowd, they were filled with jealousy. So the question that the Bible reader has to ask is, why were they so jealous? Let me give you some possible reasons. First of all, it's possible that they were jealous because of the size of the crowd. For years, just imagine, these local synagogue Jewish leaders have been trying to fill the synagogue by being faithful to the Mosaic law. No matter what they did, they could not gather this type of crowd. Look closely at what they did. They compared the results of their ministry with the results of Paul and Barnabas' ministry. It was comparison. Friends, the fruit of comparison is always envy. That's Facebook post worthy, Aaron. The fruit of comparison is envy. One of the things that, can I just be transparent for a moment? One of the things that I have to fight with on a regular basis is comparing the bridge to other churches. Because either it's going to either lead to one of two or both responses and neither one of them are well. If we're doing better than so-and-so church, then it's going to lead to pride. And if we're not doing as well as so-and-so church, it's going to lead to jealousy and envy. Both, with, both of which are neither the fruit of the spirit. They are fleshly response. And what happens to us corporately will also happen to you individually. You start looking and saying, well, my house is not as big as her house. Let's just more clean it up anyways. <laughs> Who want to do that? Comparison, friends, leads to envy and jealousy. So maybe they saw the size of the crowd and they said, I'm just jealous now. Another reason they may have been jealous is because Gentiles were in the crowd. Remember the setting. We are in Antioch of Pisidia, which is a predominantly Gentile city. And remember, Jews, Gentiles, they don't like each other. Jews say, y'all unclean. Gentiles say, we don't like you no ways. Thank you, Shannon. For these disbelieving Jews, they could not fathom Gentiles been a part of God's family. They could not believe that Gentiles would receive the sure blessings that come with the kingdom of God. At best, this is prejudice. At worst, it's racism. 
Well, let me give you another reason they may have been jealous. And this one's really good. They probably were jealous because they just simply opposed the gospel. They, they didn't believe the gospel to be true. They denied that Jesus was the promised Messiah of Israel. And therefore, since Paul and Barnabas were preaching and proclaiming this gospel, they started to contradict what they were teaching. Friends, listen to me. Whenever the gospel is being proclaimed, though some will be attracted to it, others will oppose it. There will be division. Jesus even said it himself. Jesus says, listen here. He said this to his disciples. Do not think that I came to bring peace to the earth. For I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father. What Jesus was saying is that loyalty to him is costly. And it may bring division with those closest to you. There may have to be some breaking of ties because of your loyalty to Christ. Friends, there will always be opposition to the gospel. There will be those who believe and those who reject. There will be those who see it as the wisdom of God, and then there will be those who just see it as pure foolishness. In Philippians 3 and 18, Paul even said that there are enemies to the cross of Christ. Paul and Barnabas According to verse 50, they encounter persecution because of the gospel. Friends, oftentimes the opposition to the gospel will affect you personally. Satan hates the progress of the gospel. Satan hates the progress of sound doctrine. The growth of the Christian is deplorable to Satan. And, and, and let me just say that some of you in this room today are going through a season of suffering, a season of trial, a season of tribulation, a season of testing right now because of Satan's opposition to the gospel. He sees you growing. And he says, let me do something to hinder your growth. So, so, so they, they revile the message, but not only do they revile the message, they also reject the message. That's the other negative response to the gospel. Gospel. Verse 46 says, And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying it was necessary for the word of God to be spoken first to you, since you thrusted it aside. You judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. So we're going to go to the Gentiles. It was necessary, Paul says, that the gospel be proclaimed to the Jews first. Why? Because that's who God made his covenant with. It was through the Jews that the Messiah would come. That's what Paul says even in Romans 1.16, where he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God that leads to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. So God is faithful in sending the Messiah to Israel. However, these Jews reject the Messiah and his message. And look at the result. The text says they bring judgment on themselves. Paul says they themselves thrust it aside the gospel 
gospel and judge themselves unworthy of eternal life. Notice, friend, that Paul puts responsibility for their disbelief on them. They judged themselves unworthy. They, they disqualified themselves from receiving eternal life. Let's see if we can make somebody mad this morning. This verse, friends, seems to support the belief then that God doesn't send people to hell. People send themselves to hell. So the question that's often asked, why would a loving God send people to hell, is a misinformed question. Theologically, people do this to themselves. We, friends, are responsible for our own lack of belief. This disbelief, this unbelief, is the fruit of our own sin nature that we inherited from our father Adam. All right, just hang on. I'll balance this out in our next point. Paul says, now, since you have rejected the gospel and you have judged yourselves of unworthy of eternal life, we're going to the Gentiles. Friends, this is all a part of God's saving plan. Paul and Barnabas even here quote Isaiah chapter 49 verse 6, which says that God's servant will be a light to the nations so that God's salvation would reach to the end of the earth. This, this suffering servant in Isaiah is none other than Jesus Christ. And Paul and Barnabas say that by extension, they are to now go to the Gentiles and be light. Paul makes it clear that the gospel going to the Gentiles has always been a part of God's saving plan. It's been God's plan from eternity past for salvation to be claimed to all people all over the earth. Here's the point. God has a heart for the nations. He works through his own people to reach the nations. This means, friends, that we must have a heart for the nations as well. And God uses coming people like you and I to reach the nations. So this is the negative response. The negative response, on, on one hand, is the reviling of the messenger and the rejection of the message. But not only is there a negative response to the gospel, there's also a positive response to the gospel. Look at the positive response to the gospel. What's the positive response to the gospel? One, repent. Look at verse 48. Verse 48 says, And as many as were appointed to eternal life, what they do? They believed. That's the sign of repentance. They stopped believing in one thing and started believing in Jesus Christ. They turned from believing in fidelity to the Mosaic law and turned to fidelity to Christ and him alone. That, friends, they turned from unbelief in Christ now trusting in Jesus Christ. That is repentance. And that's a positive response to the gospel. Now, 
You ready? Let's go to the deep end of the pool. The text says, as many as were appointed to eternal life, believe. This, friend, shows God's sovereignty over salvation. This, this God's sovereignty meaning God's rule, overarching rule over every area of life. Salvation, church, is the complete work of God from start to finish. The text says that the elect are appointed to eternal life. That word appointed can also be translated decreed or ordained. God chose certain individuals to receive eternal life, and as a result, they believed. Hold on. You didn't get that. Notice the order. God chose first cause. What's the effect? Belief. We're going to say it slower. We're going to get this this morning. Cause God chose result belief. Why is this important? Because there are some who believe that people, God looked down through the corridors of time and he saw that people would believe cause. Therefore, he elected them. In other words, the election was conditioned upon belief first. That means man is able to contribute to his own salvation. That's theologically incorrect because we are radically corrupted to our core. And on our own, we will always rebel against God. We will always choose something else over God. So therefore, man cannot be responsible for his own salvation. He cannot cooperate in his own salvation. He only responds to what God has already done. God chose from, the, from, from before the foundation of the world. He chose certain people would be a part of his redeemed family. And as a result of their election, they would then believe. Belief is the proof of election. Friends, faith is dependent on election. By the way, this doctrine is called unconditional election. Our election to receive eternal life by God is not conditional on anything we do first. God has to be the one to take the initiative. And that's what even what happened as we trace salvation history in this text. Look what happens. God sent his son, Jesus Christ. God willed his son to die. God, but God, raised him from the dead. God gives new life to dead people. God saved Paul and Barnabas. God sent Paul and Barnabas. And then God assigned the elect to eternal life. My point is simple. It all starts with God. 
This verse makes it clear, friends, that election is not dependent on faith, but that faith is dependent on election. In other words, we are not elected because we believe, but we believe because we are elected. The implication for us is that God makes it very evident that there is no room for human merit as it pertains to salvation. There is no room for human merit as it pertains to salvation. Salvation, church, is the work of God, not the work of man. So, we're already in the deep end of the pool. Let's go a little deeper. This text as a whole confirms the sovereignty of God and the freedom of man. Let me put my glasses off. Let me put my glasses back on. <laughs> this text confirms the sovereignty of God and the freedom of man are compatible. In other words, the sovereignty of God does not negate human responsibility. As humans, we do have meaningful choices. And I use the term meaningful, meaningful choice intentionally. I use the term meaningful choice over the term free will. Because I think the words free will are misleading. No man's will is completely free. All right? According to the Bible, prior to Christ, we are all slaves to sin. You can't be a slave and be free. Some people think that the sovereignty of God means that we really have no freedom or no meaningful choices. And I want to suggest to you that that's not biblical. Let's just go back to the very beginning. Adam. God demonstrated his sovereignty by creating the heavens and the earth. On the sixth day, God created man. When the sovereign God created man, he told them, you are free to eat of any tree in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I think we need to take that word uh, we need to really receive that. You are free. So the sovereign God grants freedom to his creation. God exercises sovereignty in his creation, and then what he did was he told man how he was going to live under his rule. The sovereign God told Adam, you are free, and then gave him the ability to make a meaningful choice to either obey his command or disobey his command. God was still sovereign when he gave Adam the ability to make a meaningful choice. What makes a choice is a part of man's will. And if man is created in the image of God, he has to have the ability to make meaningful choices. What makes a choice free is if a person acts according to his or her 
own desire. Say that again. What makes a choice free is if a person acts according to his or her own desire. All right? Let's see if we can give you an illustration. All right. Imagine with me that I am the sovereign of this room for illustration's sake. We know Jesus is the head of the church, and Jesus has uh, ordained for there to be a plurality of elders, so obviously I'm not sovereign, but just, just, just work with me. Use your sanctified imagination <laughs> to make me the sovereign in this room. Now, I have sovereignly decided that somebody is going to leave this room, go outside, get in their car, and leave before service is over. <laughs> I've sovereignly decided that. Now, I can make this happen one of three ways. One, I can say, Brian, get out my church, get in your car, and skadoodle, skedaddle, get out, drive. And against his own will, he may get up and leave because I'm the sovereign. He's not making a free choice because his desire, because he's loving this message so much, he wants to stay here. But I sovereignly told him, get up and go. That's against his desire. That's not a meaningful choice. It's not a free choice because he's doing what is against his desire. Now, I could go down these steps, pick up Brian myself, and carry him out, put him in his car, start the engine, put a brick on his foot on the accelerator, and say, go. Again, he's not exercising free will. Because it is against his desire. Because he likes being the focal point of my illustration right now. <laughs> now, I say, I'm going to give anybody the opportunity, including Brian, to leave. Get in your car and drive to a certain location. Because we have a donor that wants to bless the first person that arrives with him with $500,000. See, everyone's desire just changed. <laughs> you just made a free choice to get up out of your seat, leave the building, get in your car, and you want to know where the donor, where the donor. I want my half a meal. Now, guess what? You still left the building. I had already decided somebody's going to leave the building this morning, remember? And you acted according to your desire. You're now ready to up and leave for some money. I thought y'all was loyal. <laughs> These folks ain't loyal. God <laughs> sovereignly decides that certain things are going to happen, but he's not going to override your desire. So then, let's go back to salvation, because in the text we're talking about salvation. How does the sovereignty of God and the freedom of man actually work. Ain't no money out there. You might as well come back. 
See, I told y'all I sovereignly decided, get. God sovereignly elects certain people to be a part of his family, to be saved, to receive salvation. The problem, though, is that God has created man in his image, which means that they have choice. The choice is always to rebel against God. Because God gives us freedom, what does he do? He says, all right, now I need to give you some new desires then. So then what he does is he says, I'm going to give you a new heart. And I'm going to give you a new spirit. And now that you have the Holy Spirit, you are going to be born again. And now you're going to have the ability to have new desires. And act in accordance with those new desires. And so when he gives us the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit says, now I have the desire now to, to, to be changed and to follow Christ. And so God gives us the faith that we need to respond to his election. Thank you, because I worked hard, man, on that. I appreciate that. <laughs> and so that's what we see happening in this text God says, I've elected these people before the foundation of the earth. And so in order for them to have the desire to respond to this, I've got to give them the faith, and that's going to be by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, my point, friends, is that we do have meaningful choices, and even the choices that we make are not just an illusion by any means. God gives us freedom in this. Now, God can, let me make this clear, God can, because he is sovereign, Make us do something against our own desire. He's sovereign. But that's not how God works most of the time with us. And so that's the tension that we live in. Some of you are like, okay, I want you to go more. Some of you are like, I have no idea what he's talking about. Yo, this is a big debate in theological circles. We have nothing better to do with our time. So we come up with debates like this to fill the time. Let me tell you something. This tension of the sovereignty of God and the freedom of man is biblical. But here's what the Bible doesn't do. It does not solve the issue for us. Because there are some things that we need to accept on faith, and it's healthy for us to remain in that tension. We are finite people trying to understand an infinite God. And because the Bible does not solve this issue, I'm not going to try to. We didn't even scratch the surface this morning, the stuff I've been talking about. We can't understand it, but we have to be okay in living in that holy tension. All right. They repent. Not only is the positive response to the gospel repentance, but the positive response to the gospel is also rejoicing. The text says that when the Gentiles heard this, they rejoiced and glorified the word of the Lord. Friends, this is the appropriate response to revelation. That's what many people describe worship as. Worship is the response to revelation. Every time you encounter God's word, that's God, mm, oh, excuse me, too much water. God reveals himself to you. And our response to that revelation is worship. Adoration, devotion, 
And that worship will be expressed in a number of different ways. It may be singing. It may be lifting of your hands. It may be partaking of the Lord's Supper. It may be physically. It may result in deeper devotion to God that, that's expressed in our conduct. But the text says that we ought to worship. And they did that by rejoicing and glorifying the word. Friends, if there's a re reason to rejoice this morning, it's because God has revealed himself to you. You've responded to that revelation by believing and receiving eternal life. And the appropriate response is to rejoice. Every Sunday you show up. I know there are some Sundays been there, done that. There are some Sundays you say, I really ain't feeling this but I'm going to go through the motions. Baby, at that moment, you ought to realize that I've been saved. I was in the pit. I was in darkness, so I've got a reason to rejoice this morning. Matter of fact, not only, even, not only do we ought to rejoice, see, the reason we ought to rejoice in earth is because people who've never been saved rejoice, too. Well, Brandon, people who've never been saved rejoice because you've been saved. What are you talking about? Jesus said, even the angels in heaven rejoice when one sinner repents. Friends, if the angels who've never been saved can rejoice in heaven, then we on earth who have been the recipients of God's love who, by sending his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross, we ought to be able to rejoice because of the gospel. The psalmist said it like this. He said that the redeemed of the Lord ought to... Woo, I, I wish I had some redeemed folks this morning. All right. The positive response to the gospel. Repent, rejoice, repeat. What are you talking about, Brandon? Many times we start talking about the doctrine of election, and, and people come to the conclusion then, well, then what's the point of evangelism? If God's going to save whoever he's already appointed, decreed, ordained to eternal life, then evangelism is pointless. That's not what the Bible says. Look what happens in, 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 in verse uh, 49. The, set, the word says, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. In other words, the elect, the response of the election for the elect was, let's go tell others. Why does evangelism matter, even if God is already elected? Because God works through human agency to share the gospel. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How can they call on whom they have not believed? How can they believe in whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without a messenger? God works through our witness to bring the elect to belief. The election then does not negate the need for evangelism, but it empowers and motivates us to go and spread the gospel. Friends, the gospel is a fork in the road of moment. How will you respond? You can either receive it by faith or you can reject it. And both have consequences. You receive it by faith, eternal life. 
you reject it by foolishness. Eternal condemnation. It's a fork in the road moment. I know, I know, I know you're saying, Brandon, I've been saved since I was uh, uh, three years old. I'm 82 now. What this message got to do with me? What I said earlier, the gospel, we have to rehearse the gospel to ourselves every day. Because our nature is to want to work our way to God. Earn our peace with God. That's not gospel living, people. Gospel is grace. It is scandalous, by the way. That's why some, it's a stumbling block, too. Peter. Friend Peter is is an illustration of that. He's not my friend. I lied. I met him over here at Watermark. Shared the gospel with him. He said, yeah, I've heard this so many times, but I just think people ought to be held responsible for their action. His problem was grace. Our time is up. How you, will you respond now? to the word that you've heard. Let us stand. I'll pray for you. And we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, thank you for what our eyes have seen, our ears have heard, our hearts have felt. Help us, God, not to just to be hearers of your word, but doers as well. Father, rather than us fussing and cussing about election, we rejoice this morning that you have loved us even while we were yet sinners. You sent Jesus Christ to die for us. So rather than arguing and debating about election, we accept it, we rejoice in it, then we accept the awesome task and responsibility of telling others of Jesus Christ, being the Son of God, who, was, who died, was buried, and rose on the third day, and all who trust in him, will receive eternal life. Now, Father, as we depart from here, we pray for traveling grace and arriving mercy. For that person who has not yet trusted in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, Father, we pray right now through the Holy Spirit that you convict them of their sinfulness and their need for a Savior that is found in Jesus Christ and him alone. Father, we pray that by faith they will trust in you and Jesus Christ for those who are already believing, Father, we pray that every day we would rehearse the gospel to ourselves, live in light of the gospel, and repeat it to others. Thank you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week. You are dismissed.